welcome to Hell is for Hyphen, it's for April 2013. I am writer, hyphen critic, hyphen luxuriously overpronounced Ben Kingsley American accent, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Hi there everybody, I'm writer, hyphen director, hyphen Oliver Stone directed terrorist video, apparently, Paul Anthony Nelson, and with us today is our very special guest... Jeremy Smith. Uh, I write as Mr. Beaks for Ain't It Cool News, and uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I was like, do I have any other things worth mentioning? No, no, not at all. I'm, that's what I do. I'm sure you do. That That's pretty significant. Yeah. <laughs> You're allowed to have that. Um, yeah, coming in all the way from, is it LA? Uh, yes. Uh, I believe yeah. it's LA via Ohio, am I right? Uh, originally, yeah. Yeah, grew up yeah. In, uh, in, in, in the Midwest, and then... Uh, New York City for about five years and then uh, bounced out here. <laughs> it's all those Cleveland Cavs tweets that give you away. Uh, yes, yeah, that's <laughs> if anyone follows me. Uh, I've probably lost it many followers uh, whenever it's a <laughs> basketball or, or a football season. I'm pretty, pretty devoted. <laughs> well, we're usually a little embarrassed when we have an American guest on because we have this embarrassing lag of release dates, um, you know, six months until, you know, one of the big Hollywood films comes out here. But this time, uh, Marvel is doing the usual thing of releasing films early internationally for some reason. I don't know why. It could be that we're the biggest pirators in the world, apparently, our, our country, Australia. Um, you know, something to be proud of. But we do have <laughs> Iron Man 3. And I have a theory about this film. I enjoyed it a lot. I thought... Um, uh, Shane Black was the perfect choice to do them. I love the PTSD stuff they did with Tony Stark. But I realised that it's actually taken its cues from two other part threes. Thematically, it's doing the Dark Knight Rises thing of, you know, terrorism and how it relates to the media and, and using that in the context of a superhero film, which is really interesting. But structurally, this film is identical to Batman Forever. <laughs> <laughs> Think about it. Think, look at Guy Pearce's journey next to Jim Carrey. He starts out as this, you know, kind of weedy guy who wants the billionaire industrialist superhero to come in on the ground floor on his idea, and he gets turned away, and then comes back all suave. And he's got this—he's working with this other villain who we've been introduced to in the media from the beginning. He's already established, and then you've got our billionaire hero who takes a quasi-orphaned kid under his wing. And then you've got the big third act on a man-made island. Uh, I have more, but I don't want to spoil. But that's uh, I'm amazed that no one, no one else that I've seen has made that connection. Interesting. Well, I, I, would, I would have to have Batman Forever fresh on the brain uh, to, to make that connection uh, initially. Yeah. But, uh, but now that you're saying it, yes, it, it all that, that's actually very fascinating. It helps if you were 14 when it came out and you briefly thought it was the greatest thing ever before you grew up. That, that was a fact. I was probably a little older and, and I was, I was uh, experiencing Batman fatigue at that moment. So Fair enough. Yeah. But uh, no, that, that's a really, uh, that, that's kind of uh, interesting. I, you know, I do like that the film is, uh, it is a Shane Black movie. That it, you know, the problem with these Marvel films is that they, they hire directors who, you know, may have a voice of their own, and and, they, and it usually gets muted because they have to, you know, they just have to fit within these parameters that the Marvel sets up and within a certain uh, style. And 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 with Shane, it seems they let him at least write the way Shane writes, and 
it'll be really cool to see if you know that is at all well i mean or how it plays with regular audiences i think it'll do great it's not like shane hasn't written a bunch of successful action films in his career but i you know i think he was an inspired choice and i think it allowed him to work through some things especially uh his bond movie fetish uh <laughs> he definitely gets you know, yeah he gets to do a little bond business in this so uh, yeah it seems like he's having fun and, and it comes through and, and i had a great time with it yeah i find it it really um holds together quite well and i um i do like that it's a little stripped back you know there, there, there's huge stretches of the film where uh stark has to rely on his wits and it plums kind of levels of darkness that we've not really seen from the Marvel films. This whole sort of uh, conspiracy, uh, sort of terrorist conspiracy from within in order to destabilize the nation. Um, I, I, I was watching it in a, in, a, in a full cinema yesterday and some ki- uh, had some kids behind me. And the kid, as soon as the film finished, was uh, turned to his dad and said, man, that was really violent. <laughs> it was like... <laughs> <laughs> it was it was it was kind of a bit too intense, and wow. and which I kind of like. It's like yeah, that's the Shane Black we know and love. Um, yeah, he is absolutely uh, the perfect choice for this, and handles the action quite well too. And the other thing I, that Shane is able to do in this movie that I haven't, I don't think anyone has done in a Marvel film yet, is that there there is a a strong thematic through line. Uh, if you really look at it, it you know the the whole idea of, of 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 Tony being defined by the suit and a feeling, uh, you know, kind of suffocated and you know and claustrophobic because of, you know, you know because of what the suit represents and and mm-hmm. it's interesting to see how other people end up in the suit in this movie and it's like and and it's in you know you have to ask yourself you know why are they in the suit at this point you know what does it mean and you know I I think that. The fact that they were thinking on that level is really uh, exciting, uh, and, and it gives you something to work through the second time you go to see it. I mean, I don't know if it's all going to add up, if it's as interesting as I thought it might be the first time, but I, I really look forward to engaging those ideas and, and try to, trying to sort through them. Yeah, that's a really great point. And the whole thing about him, you know, he's got the post-traumatic stress disorder, and he's constantly, and this isn't a spoiler because it's in the trailer, but he's constantly building these suits. You know, and it's like he's building new shells for himself. You know, it's, it's like new places for him to hide that all are slightly different from the other and they're all kind of externalizations of things he's kind of possibly feeling. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, again, like I'm still kind of working through exactly what it all means, but, you know, it, it is, it's just great that it's there. And, uh, yeah, I got to interview Shane Black this past week and, and I kind of brought that up and he was like, and it was with Kevin Feige was in the room, and the minute I brought him up, brought it up, he looked over to Feige and was just like, "See, see, I told you someone would get it." <laughs> so yeah, I guess that must have been a conversation at some point. But yeah, well, look at the other end. Oh, I may have spoken too soon about the whole release date thing because the other end of the scale, uh, over a year after its Sundance premiere, over seven months after its U.S. release, we've finally got. Sleepwalk With Me, the film from Mike Birbiglia and This American Life's Ira Glass. Now, I love this film, but as my partner is the publicist for it, I'm going to recuse myself from any further discussion and throw throw it to the floor. Yeah, I adored this film. I didn't really expect it to hit me the way it did. I just I just felt it was this beautifully elegant and, and, and sort of, simple uh story yet um is so resonant and universal like it's so odd and so rooted in his own experience of 
of you know becoming a, a stand-up comedian and finding you know finding his voice and then um and the way the the metaphor of him sort of you know his sleepwalking disorder but also the fact he's kind of sleepwalking through life as well uh run beautifully parallel and but you know it, it's never that pretentious it never draws attention to it it's it's only you know once you sort of step outside the theater and begin picking at it it's like oh wow that's actually an, a lovely little parallel mm. it reminded me a lot of something like swingers it's one of those films that i think is going to connect with a lot of people because i think it says a lot of things about being in your 30s and trying to find your direction when life is pushing you in another one because, you know, of expectations of other people or expectations of what you're meant to do and as opposed to, you know, what you want to do. And then you're doing what you want to do, but you, that's not quite working out for you and you're sort of thinking, well, is that the right way to go? And then, you know, you, you sort of finally realise that, oh, I just, oh, I need to say it like that. And then after that, it just, you know, things begin to come together. That's what I like. You know, he doesn't end up a stadium selling, you know, rock star after that he's just you know he's 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 on tour he's getting paid to tell jokes and mm. and that's all he kind of wants and you know and as a i just say budding you know aspiring emerging artist myself i really really relate to that but i think it's it, it says a lot about relationships and 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 things that a lot of people um in their 30s will take away from it it's also really really funny um, it's absolutely hilarious. Yeah, it's such a strong directorial debut, though. He's got such a wonderfully unassuming but very distinctive voice. And, um, yeah, and, and the film plays its thematic through lines really well. Okay, so Danny Boyle thinks he's doing Nicholas Rogue. He's been saying in interviews that his new film, Trance, is Nick Rogue. Does anyone else think that it's actually a Cronenberg throwback? I don't think so because we've actually got a Cronenberg throwback to talk about in a little bit. Um, but Stop spoiling my segues. <laughs> but, uh, I think it feels almost like, I don't know, it's like some weird Oliver Stoney type thing. I'm not sure. Um, I know that it collapses in the second half, so <laughs> there's that. <laughs> well, yeah, it's kind of got all the right ingredients. It's got, a, it's got a cool cast. It's got a great premise. It's got a real style to it, but it just gets ridiculous. It gets... The, the shifting protagonist idea is really messy. The it's a, There's a really bad execution of the unreliable narrator trope because with the unreliable narrator, key facts are withheld for character reasons, not just so something can be surprising in five minutes. It really... I really wanted to like it, but it just it just collapsed for me. I actually really liked it. Uh, and, and kind of what you're saying about the unreliable narrator, that I, um, I kind of enjoyed that... You know the, the director. Like everyone's unreliable here. You know, and, and and it kind of, as it as it builds into the second act, and as it as the you know we begin to see the scope of exactly what's all messed up in his head and uh, in, in our mm. protagonist's head. That you know you you begin to as it begins to kind of spin out of control. I kind of enjoy all of that. I, I enjoy that it gets kind of ludicrous. Uh, it feels like Boyle's just kind of having fun emulating the work of you know, and and I think that I can see some of the rogue there. Uh, I think Cronenberg's mm. definitely a good touchstone. I think obviously Hitchcock is, you know, the the whole shaving uh, sequence and the and the reveal of that feels like a, a very uh, kind of a silly version of Vertigo. Vertigo, yeah. It's one of those films where all the characters are ciphers, dictated completely by the plot 
I felt. And everybody kind of winds up being a monster and you're sort of like, who are we meant to be relating to in this film and our protagonists who have been there? And I don't mind switches. I, like, I don't mind getting used to a character and then you switch and it's like, oh, they're actually a monster. Okay. As long as there's someone else in there to empathise with or at least our monster remains somewhat empathetic, that just goes out the window in this film. Like everybody ends up seeming like such a horrible, so horrible and such constructs. Yeah, I just got completely pulled out. And then by the end of the film, I just wasn't interested in anybody and I just wanted it to end. Well, yeah, and, you know, and it, um, I did like how at least, you know, the protagonist became not, you know, or we lost all sympathy with him. And then, you know, by the end of it, you're kind of rooting for someone else entirely. Yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit shallow grave in that respect. Yes. Um, well, yeah, to the arguably far more successful Cronenberg throwback, uh, like quite literally if you're getting into DNA, uh, Antiviral, the, the first film from Brandon, chip off the old block, Cronenberg, who is definitely, you can tell he's his father's son, yet, I don't know, I, I felt this, this film had a, a real style of its own. Uh, I, I loved that he uses the sort of ingrained big pharma industry as not a comment on itself, but as a device to... I guess, comment on celebrity culture and, and worship. I thought that was a really clever uh, clever angle. But I don't know, it's, it's very slow-paced, but really, I don't know, it really sucked me in. Well, you know, I was just thinking visually, you know, with this movie, and, you know, that the thing about David Cronenberg has always been that he's, he, I mean, visually, he, you know, he, he, he gets the job done, and, you know, in his movies, but, I mean, his, I wouldn't say his films are stylish i think that you know what happens in them there is a, definitely a style to it but he's not he doesn't have great visual flourish let's put it that way no he never has and and you know and it seems like his son you know i i feel like there's there's something there's there is a bit more flourish here he's he is formally perhaps learned from his father and is you know trying to set himself apart by i don't know you know trying to establish his own aesthetic and and while also calling back the stuff that we loved, or I guess the stuff that he just can't get away from because uh, it's in the family. Yeah, there's almost a kind of a, there's a little bit of a, I mean, I know it sounds almost like a cliche to say, but there's a little bit of Kubrick to the visuals here. It's all very, there's a lot of symmetry. There's a lot of, you know, slow push-ins. There's a lot of quiet spaces. It's, it's very stark. I absolutely loved this film. I thought it was beautifully put together look I, I think yeah i think it is a little over long you probably could shave maybe 10 minutes out of it but i thought it was one of the most um cogent dissections and and satires of the horrible celebrity culture we kind of find ourselves in at the moment that mm. i've seen in some time i mean the fact that somebody would want to share a virus <laughs> with like herpes with their favorite celebrity because it makes mm. them feel closer to them or like they've had an encounter with them such a fascinating idea and yeah and it's got the ick factor of 12 that the best Cronenberg films have and there's a lot of great satire about uh the sort of the 24-hour TMZ style celebrity news culture as well yeah I thought it was a, a, a startling debut now, look, I'm not a huge, huge fan of Jonathan Levine's films. I really, unlike everybody else in the world, I actively hated 50-50. I was really not looking forward to Warm Bodies, but it completely won me over. I, I, f I found it quite funny and touching, and I guess what I look for, because, you know, we've reached the point of oversaturation with zombies, and unless you've got something new to say about it, I just don't just want to see a retread of the same old tropes, and... What I found with Warm Bodies is it really struck me as a metaphor 
for disability. And I've never seen zombies used like that. As somebody who's sort of, you know, the, the RR, our lead zombie, sort of wants to speak, he wants to communicate, but his body won't do what he tells it to do. And people are therefore afraid of him. And I, I thought that was absolutely inspired and, uh, and yeah, completely won me over. I think it, like, I don't know, I found it more as a metaphor for someone who's kind of emotionally closed off or emotionally distant and then mm. somebody gradually drawing them out. And it's, it's kind of almost a, a metaphor for the planet at the moment and everybody's kind of apathetic and in their own space and zombified through life and, and you know, and all, you know, it's the old all we need is love thing. And I thought that was quite clever. Um, and I, look, I think this film is really well directed. I, I liked the whackness, but I wasn't blown away by it. I haven't seen 50-50 or All the Boys Love Mandy Lane. But I found this really well made, but I just found the script kept... I don't, it, there was just too much eye-rolling from me in this film. There was, there was just too many moments where I, I, it just kept pulling me out. I know zomb, zombie rules don't matter because zombies aren't real and it's whatever you want them to be, but I just found a lot of this stuff kind of... A li- it, it was just a bit bridged too far for me in terms of uh, uh, suspension of disbelief. And I found the whole Romeo and Juliet thing a bit forced. And I don't know, I just I, I, I came out of it thinking I, I think its target audience is really going to love it, but I just thought it was a bit silly. I really have hit the zombie uh, apathy. I, I just I, I can't. <laughs> I'm sure at some point I'll be like, I'll, I'll want to watch the Romero films. I'll want to watch some zombie movies. But right now, just anything with zombies in them, uh, just completely, it's, I, I'm... I'm kind of checked out. And and I will mm-hmm. say, to Levine's credit, that I thought was competently done. I mean, a competence to uh, wishy-washy. It was, it's it's really well done. But it just, throughout it all, I, I just, I felt like I was stuck in a genre where it, you know, we're using it, you know, it's, it's always got to be a metaphor for something. And here I was just kind of like, <laughs> well, I'd like you, I, I would like you to explore these themes using a different vehicle, using, yeah. you know, uh, just anything but zombies. I just can't. <laughs> I, and, uh, and so, you know, I, I, I feel bad because I think, you know, Levine, I've, I'm kind of hot and cold on Levine. Oddly, I, I like 50, 50, uh, despite it being kind of like a TV movie. Um, I, I thought it, there was some honesty to it. Uh, the whackness, I did not, um, didn't get much out of that at all. Uh, but he does have something going on. Oh, and I do like all the, all the boys off Mandy Line quite a bit. Um, but, but yeah, this, this just felt like, uh, it felt like you know his his first studio gig, and it's like, hey, I can do this, and and I didn't get anything else out of it, but but that unfortunately. And just to go out, one of my favorite films from last year has finally got a release here this month, and I'm just going to say, if you only see one hilarious true life story about the ousting of Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet, please make it no. I think that's the one you should see. <laughs> Well, this month we're doing our quarterly uh, mini hyphenate. Uh, that is a filmmaker who has uh, ended their career or will likely end their career on less than five directorial efforts and therefore probably won't be picked for the main stage, but, you know, we think their filmographies are worth checking out. And this month uh, we're, we're going to look at um, the sadly late um, Argentinian filmmaker Fabian Belinsky, 
who uh, died in 2006 at the age of 47 of a heart attack after making just two shorts and two features and was clearly proving to be, to be uh, quite a huge talent, but not only, um, not only extremely talented, but quite accessible as well. I've read that there's this divide in Argentinian cinema, and it's certainly come across in Argentinian films I've seen, that they're either extremely esoteric and, and artful and slow and so forth, and the stuff I've seen less of, uh, the more commercial stuff, is apparently quite sort of empty and basic and, and really silly. And Belinsky was famed for going right up the middle of those, of kind of almost being a kind of... Argentina's Quentin Tarantino of sorts in a way that he sort of kind of married art and commerce, like made these great kind of crime films that were also incredibly, um, incredibly intelligent and artful. Now, his first short, which I am blanking on the title of, uh, but we couldn't find it. It's, yeah, I think it was sort of either a student film or a pre-student film, because uh, the only one that's really available to watch is... Uh, 1983's La Espera, or The Waiting. And that was his graduation film. Mm. So I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that both of those two shorts from the early 80s were both at film school in, in Argentina. But uh, The Waiting was his graduation short, and my God, it's a cracker. Mm. It's, it's a really moody, effective film, and it, and it shows such a, a style that makes you wonder why he it took him so long to direct his first feature because he became an assistant director he worked on a few feature films he did about 400 commercials and uh, in 98 he was the co-screenwriter of The Sleepwalker which is this amazing um, science fiction thriller which is it's got some incredible imagery and it should be a cult classic but I think that really sort of getting back into the creative side of things must have gone some way to getting him uh, his first directorial feature, Nine Queens. Well, that was 17 years after graduating from film school. He finally gets to make his directorial debut in in 2000. Um, And Nine Queens was quite a famous uh, sort of art house international title of that year, and you can see why by watching it. It's Mm. such a cool, twisty, propulsive little thing. Oh, it, it, it jumps right out at you as uh, it's, it's David Mamet a little. What fun it is when you get a film where your antenna go up and you realize, oh, okay, I've really got to pay attention here. And, and every little gesture, every, you know, whatever these guys are doing, I mean, they, they are, they're as unreliable as they get. And he plays with that. And I love that it's like, you know, he knows that, you're, that your antenna are up and he's going to really push it to the hilt. And, it, and it's just incredibly fun movie and, and you, you were saying earlier that accessibility is something that you know you, you with foreign movies you don't see as much and it's a film that I thought I don't know if it got really wide release in Australia but it, you know I, I thought it it could have been a, a hit here in the states for what it is I, I think it's just so much fun I think it, I think it became quite successful on video here as certainly the cinephiles I know in the US started getting into it on video and I think the same thing happened over here. I actually noticed him because he only made two features. And I first noticed him with the aura in 2005, which just blew my socks off. It's this incredible film about, you know, a quiet man who sort of dreams of the mechanics of a heist 
but um, suffers from epilepsy. And uh, it's one of those films that manages to be exciting on on that purely visceral, heisty level, but has so much meaning and subtext and metaphor going on. And, And yeah, those two films together are just so incredible and so promising it's tragic i mean yeah yeah, there could have been that could have been a really amazing body of work it's such a compelling career and you kind of wonder if because it's interesting because nine queens is quite kind of snappy and propulsive and whereas the aura is a lot more even though it's a crime film it's directed like an art film it's very meditative it's very kind of it's kind of slow moving Mm. it's very psychological and it's interesting to see where he would have gone from there, whether it would have been a marriage of the two styles or whether he would have gone more in that direction. It's fun to speculate, but sad to think that we were robbed of this guy so so early, just when he was beginning to kind of hit his straps. Because, man, talk about a two-for-two two record. Yeah. It's always, yeah, with directors like that, it, uh, it's frustrating. Um, yeah. but, you know, but Nine Queens is a, it's a hell of a movie. It is. Yeah. So tell us, Jeremy, whom have you picked for your... Hellas for Hyphenates, Filmmaker of the Month. I have picked the universally beloved Brian De Palma. <laughs> <laughs> is it that universal? It is universal. It is. He is the most successful filmmaker in America. He is, uh, yes, widely mimicked. And, uh, you know, this is the world I want to live in. And, of course, none of it is true. So I have, of course, picked up on your De Palma love from all of your online writings, but what is it that makes him that, that guy that you respond to, that filmmaker that you really, you know, grab hold of? It's pure cinema, you know. Mm-hmm. It, uh, from a very early age, I, you know, and, and I shouldn't have been watching some of the films I, I happened to run across, but, you know, they were like TV edits. And uh, I remember my parents taping The Fury uh, on TV, and, and so I watched that, uh, and, and again, I was probably ooh, seven or eight years old. The whole experience of it, and you know, and, and it didn't scare me. Like you know, it was it, it, you? You would think it would be like a, a frightening film for a kid to watch, mm-hmm. and it was just it was. I you, I can remember watching it. The sequence where uh, Amy Irving is on the flight of stairs with with Charles Durning, and and you know, you do the whole flashback in rear projection. And uh, and it was just one of those moments where I was like, I didn't know this could be, I didn't know that this could happen in movies. And this was like, <laughs> I, I don't even know. I mean, I, I was just, it was just one of those things that stuck in my memory. And then it would, it, it would get in my dreams uh, and, and sometimes my nightmares. You know, so there was, there was that kind of, you know, the, those, that early ex- exposure to it. But, uh, you know, when, whenever I would watch a film and I would notice that it said, a, you know, a Brian De Palma film. Uh, I, I would say, yes, of course it is. I, it has all of these things. It has all, you know, these motifs and, uh, they're so pleasurable to watch. They're just so well made. Uh, unlike any other director out there, his, uh, I just, I find his films, uh, pleasurable <laughs> and <laughs> even when they're, they're incredibly violent and everything else, but they, uh, they're intoxicating and, uh, he is, he is definitely my favorite filmmaker. Awesome. I look, I, I have to admit to, uh, I didn't even realize I had ignorance about his career until, because I figured, I considered myself a fan with, um, you know, certainly The Untouchables and a, a lot of his later work. Uh, but when you picked him for the podcast, I started going back and discovered this whole chunk of career pre, I guess, Sisters. 
in 73, but this whole chunk from the 60s through the 70s that people just don't talk about. He described it as he wanted to be the American Goddard. Mm. And, and I think that's a pretty apt description. Because uh, it's pro- political, it's freeform, it's genre mashing, it's confronting, it's rough. I think he fulfilled the brief uh, pretty handily. Yeah. Well, he was political, you know. It, it, they, these were revolutionary films. He definitely embraced the counterculture, and and, and and he really came at it with a strong point of view, and, and sometimes very bracing. I think uh, Hi, Mom, in particular. Jesus. It, Hi, Hi, Mom is the best of those films. I I like greetings quite a bit. I love in greetings, like, you know, the whole, uh, the magic bullet theory being, you know, (laughs) on the the naked woman's body. And, you know, there's great stuff there. But Hi Mom has this this segment. And, you know, as you're watching the film, everything has been kind of, it's it's been very episodic. And so, you know, you kind of move from one thing to another fairly quickly. The the sequence of these uh, white people going to see this show called Be Black Baby. And, you know, you just think it's going to be a bit. And it turns into something quite different than, I mean, quite more than that. It's harrowing. It is, uh, it's hilarious at first, but then it just goes places that you just are not expecting. It is a masterful sequence. It's, it, it's, no, I agree. It's like entering another dimension. I was just going to say that the first 10 minutes of Hi Mum are hilarious. Like Charles Durning showing Robert De Niro around this apartment that's falling down and explaining away everything. And then the whole conversation with, him, with De Niro and, and uh, Alan Garfield and about peeping. And, and, and it's just like this, is, like, this is as funny as anything from this period that I've seen. And then all of a sudden you're sucked. Gradu- and as you say, it's this gradual dissension into this really confronting anarchy. that, And then the way... They all explain that away after they all get out. It's just genius. I, I think after you watched it, Lee, you sort of said, how is this not mentioned as one of the best films of this period? Yeah. And, and I have to agree. You know, and, and I think the reason that it hasn't gotten any traction or that it remains a cult film is that it plays so rough. You know, the, these characters are not likable revolutionaries. They're not like, you know, it's not the cast of MASH. It's not, you know, it, you know the, the films of that era that, that did, tra- you know, trade on the on the counterculture De Palma has you know on one hand is you know he's an old you know he's a revolutionary but he's also critical of it and and of the the kind of ignorance uh that he saw uh in in some of these political activists and so he's he's letting everyone have it and that tends not to play well with uh (laughs) You know, well, you know, some people think you know it's a movie for them, and then they watch it and they come out feeling like they just got, you know, worked over, and and they did. Yeah. Mm. I, I, and I love that from Murder a la Mode in nineteen sixty eight, which was actually his second film because he made The Wedding Party in sixty three, but that mm. took six years to be released. Um, so Murder a la Mode kind of went forward as his, as his first released feature, and even from there, the Hitchcockian. Uh, obsessions and his own obsessions with voyeurism and, and cinema and as well as the political concerns are all there from day one. Well, I actually want to want to sort of jump forward a little to home movies uh, in 1980 because sort of there's something very interesting in that which informs the earlier stuff because it's it's you can almost dismiss home movies because he was teaching and I think his students directed scenes and he sort of gave them the opportunity to direct part of a big movie and yeah, and put it all together. And it was essentially a semester at Sarah Lawrence, I think. Right. It was, yeah. it was a it was a class he taught at Sarah Lawrence, and they and this film was a part of the of the class. 
And it's one of the plot lines involves a kid who's an aspiring filmmaker following his father to catch him cheating because he's sent by his mother to do so. And that is literally something that happened to De Palma when he was younger. And I've been trying to figure out because so many of his films, particularly the early ones, focus on this sort of voyeurism and scopophilia. But he's also got, as you say, that strong Hitchcock thing. You know, so many of his films are mashups of Hitchcock films, you know, Sisters is Psycho and Rear Window, and Body Double is like Vertigo and Rear Window, and you know he does he does that an, an, a number of times, and I'm not sure if he he responded to Hitchcock because Hitchcock was so obsessed with voyeurism in his films, and he already had that sort of ingrained, you know, I'm, I'm just speculating a bit. I here, think but... I think there's definitely a kindred spirit thing going on that goes beyond homage or influence. Like mm. I think it's kind of two cinematic souls connecting. And I think that's why, you know, people go, oh, why doesn't he just stop doing the Hitchcock thing? It's like, I don't think he can. I, don't, I just don't think, I, I just think that's part of him. Mm. Yeah. Well, th- those are the films that, you know, if you ever hear him talk like about, you know, the movies that influenced him, you know, he'll, he'll tell you about, you know, the time he saw Vertigo and Vista Vision and it changed everything, you know, and, you know, his, his connection to Hitchcock is really, it begins on an aesthetic level. It begins on a technical, just on an appreciation of the craft and on what and, and the way, the way that Hitchcock can work over an audience better than anyone. And De Palma saw that, and I think it just you know the light bulb went on. Was like I'd love to just really screw with an audience like that. That would be, just be terrific. But you know he's a bit of a prankster, but he's also kind of a sap. Uh, and and this is something that people just cannot deal with in a lot of in a lot of his films about and it's the tone and the tone can veer wildly from yeah. something kind of almost arch to then something incredibly tragic. Mm. Uh, you know, it is not uncommon to go to a screening of Blowout and at the end people will laugh. They don't know how to process it. Uh, I've seen it happen many times, and I'm like, I've, it's happened so many times I don't get angry about it anymore. But <laughs> uh, and trust me, that took some doing. But, um, but you know, yeah, he, you know, he's in conversation with Hitchcock, but he's also in conversation with, uh, you know, with Michael Powell, you know, because I think that yeah. Peeping, Peeping Tom had a definite influence on Murder Alamod and some of the early Absolutely, stuff. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, and Godard is definitely in there. And, you know, and we know that he loves Jules de Sin because he's worked in a lot of de Sin set pieces into his movies. Oh, well, Mission Impossible and Top Copy. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, and so there's, there are all these, and Antonioni, obviously. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's not just one, you know, like the Hitchcock thing, but the Hitchcock mm-hmm. thing gets overstated, I think, because people know those movies and they, they can, they can point out and say, Hey, Hey, he's, he's ripping off Hitchcock here. I think he's more overt about that. Like in sisters, you can see the psycho on the rear window, whereas there's, there's a little bit of, I think Sam Fuller in there, but it's, he's really overt with the actually a better example of that is obsession which is kind of played as a mashup of rebecca and vertigo but there is a like an such a nod to dial m from murder in in one of the moments like almost frame for frame and i think i think because his references to hitchcock are so overt they definitely overwhelm anything else as you say peeping tom or any other references he makes sort of get swallowed by it i i get this feeling like it's the um it's the mad kind of wizard apprentice, you know, who, who studies at the feet of the wizard and then is like, okay, now I can show you what I can do. And he kind of uses these Hitchcock films as jumping off points, but then goes to crazier places that Hitchcock would never have considered. Mm. Um, I found that with Dress to Kill. Like, Dress to Kill starts off like Psycho and then he takes that to an extreme that, that Hitchcock would just not have gone there. 
Hitchcock sort of taught him what he knew, but then from there he kind of went, you know, he used his magic for darker purposes. It's, I kind of it's like the that. same thing that classical music composers do. They, they work variations on themes. You know, they take a theme that was, you know, some composer had come up with, you know, 50 to 100 years ago, and then they say, hey, here's my version of it, you know, and, and, and no one has a problem with that. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, that's, that's, that's essentially what De Palma is doing here. I never, in any of his movies, have I ever felt that he was just stealing a, a suspense beat just because it was like, well, it worked for him, it's going to work for me, because he's never just done the shot-for-shot shot version. As you've been saying, he always finds that, and he, he kicks it up a, another level or several other levels and, and, you know, to places where you just can't believe anyone would go. Uh, and that, and mm. that can be really exciting. I think in body double, especially it's one of those great moments. I got to see that in the theater very luckily. Uh, and I was very young when I saw it, but I've never heard an audience freak out when the power drill, uh, as mm. they, as they begin to realize how far he was pushing that scene. Uh, it was, it was bedlam in that theater. But then yeah. the instant absurdity of having it plugged in the wall. <laughs> it just keeps unplugging. Oh, it, it's really great. But, uh, but yeah, that's, mm-hmm. yeah. So, yeah, so he kind of, um, as you say, we, we had this sort of, pre, uh, this American Goddard period. And, uh, you know, Murder a la Mort is this weird kind of political slasher comedy. And then Greetings is this really quite, it's anarchic, but it's quite charming film about draft dodgers. And then uh, Get to Know Your Rabbit was kind of his entree into the studios, which by all accounts didn't go so well. Phantom of the Paradise is, that's one that we're lucky it exists because I have no idea why anyone (laughs) thought that that was something worth financing. And, you know, it's all this great, uh, you know, Paul Williams music. And it's just a gas, that movie. Mm. And and he is having, I mean, that, that movie, it gives him license to cut loose because it is such a gonzo idea. It's like, well, I don't have to really uh, behave. I can, I can really have fun. And he does. And uh, he acknowledges the Hitchcock. Uh, and, you know, this is like his, one of his earlier films. And he acknowledges the Hitchcock stuff uh, with the joke, with the, uh, with, you know, going into the shower with the toilet plunger. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You yeah. know, that's, that's a, you know, so right, right there, De Palma's saying to the audience and to his critics, yes, Yes, I know. I know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, th- this yeah. is and showing the ticking clock with the, you know on the bomb with the split screen as he goes in to blow up the, the juice. That's that's actually something I want to talk about because there's a in 1970 he filmed a version a sort of stage production in New York of Euripides, uh, this incredibly pretentious uh, theater piece. Oh, you but, mean Dionysus? Di- yeah, the the film was uh, Dionysus, but he does the entire thing in split screen and that's sort of the first time he uses that and it doesn't go away like in passion his most recent film he's still using split screen and the diop the split diopter thing doesn't go away either he uses that in passion as well yeah oh yeah well, well yeah when he stops using split diopter uh, i'll i'll be worried um that's <laughs> that that is his that is a signature you know as well as the split screen and 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 yeah uh you know, and it, sometimes it's used for, you know, like suspense purposes for, you know, we're watching this thing in the background. That, but but other times it's, you know, it can reveal things about character. It serves different purposes, but it's, um, but it's applied with such craft. Uh, it, yeah, it, it's just, yeah. Yeah. and a lot of people try to emulate it and they, they never, for the most part, they, they don't get it right. So was, was Carrie his first 
big hit. I don't actually know how it was received. It was. It was, yeah? yeah. Huge hit. Um, yeah. Yeah, and that, that was that was the biggest hit of his early part, the early part of his career, and it was uh, because the whole telekinesis thing was so popular, he kind of thought, oh, well, you like the telekinesis thing. Well, let me show you what I can really do with the Fury. <laughs> and the Fury did not do all that well at the box yeah. office. And so it was kind of... There's there's been this thing throughout his career you can and you know I guess we can get to this but where where he has the success and it seems like okay you know now De Palma's you know he's on top of his game people are you know or, you know they they're getting him and you know he's gonna he's finally gonna be this hugely successful director you know one of his best friends is Steven Spielberg and Spielberg was always you know rooting for him and and, and kind of encouraging him in that commercial direction but mm. Brian has this kind of I don't even think it's self-destructive. It's just, you know, he, he does what he wants to do. and he... That's the thing. He's he's always spectacularly bad at spending his capital. <laughs> it's like, you know, he kind of makes these big hits, and it's like they're almost routinely followed by a bomb, a box office bomb anyway. Uh, first, I mean, we should talk about Carrie. I, I think Carrie's an amazing film. The way that film uses emergent female sexuality is just so powerful. Right with the opening scene and the way he shoots it, it's like this, you know, it looks like it's going to be this TNA movie, yes. like, you know, with, and it's, it's all, it's really hot. And, you know, and, and then all of a sudden he just, he finds this awful punchline at the end of the, yeah. um, at the end of something. Yeah, it, it's, it's terrific. It's such a great bait and switch. He's also got a really great eye for finding people as well. Like this. So many people that got their start in his movies, whether it's Robert De Niro, De Niro yeah. or Charles Durning or uh, Amy Irving or Daryl Joe ha- Piscopo. Joe P- <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I find that career trajectory for for De Palma in that in that period really interesting because he goes from Carrie and the Fury to I mean, leaving aside home movies, he goes from, to Dress to Kill and then the blow up remake or semi remake Blowout and then Scarface and then. Body double, and then wise guys, and then the Untouchables. It's such a weird, and then you know, Casualties of War. It just keeps keeps going on this this bizarre like zigzag. Yeah, and and a really really interesting one. I mean, you know, Scarface is so iconic, and the Untouchables is so iconic, and and yet Casualties of War is largely forgotten, but I I think is an amazing film and, and possibly superior to Platoon. Yeah. You know, the, the thing was is that there were things that De Palma did well, and there were things that the studio wanted him to do. And, you know, so once, you know, Dress to Kill becomes a hit, it's like, you, you know, let's make make another erotic thriller. You know, this isn't that expensive. And, uh, mm. you know, but then he wanted to, he really wanted to make Blowout. And then Blowout was a failure. And then he, you know, taking on Scarface, you know, it, but Scarface was De Palma at that period where he knew he was, like, hot stuff you know he he knew he was a, a, a director he was kind of at the peak of his powers and he was infamous for the violence and for perceived misogyny and so he he really embraced it with scarface <laughs> and in interviews around that time and in things that he did you know he really he kind of invited the bad boy stuff and was like yeah you know it's uh you know if they want to see an x-rated movie i'll give them an x-rated movie because they had so much trouble with the rating on dressed to kill and on scarface and uh and it's funny that Body Double is a reaction to his critics in a way, uh, his feminist critics. I think it's a it's a movie that does a lot of things, but but I think that there is, uh, but it's De Palma kind of, 
you know, with Craig Wasson, a, a fairly impotent, uh, not not a real man's man. And, and, and De Palma's kind of saying that's, you know, look, this is kind of who we are, who most guys are. This is, and, and you know, we're not the bad guy. And, you know, by the end of the film, you know, so there's that great shot, you know, with, with Melanie Griffith in the, in, in the grave, uh, you know, as, as she's like, you know, and, uh, and Craig Wasson trying to help her out. And he's like, you know, reaching down, like, you know, I've got you, you know, let me, let me get you out. And she just is screaming and it's like, she's not having anything to do with him. And it's kind of like, he's, he's, he's shown to her that he's, he's a good guy, but she doesn't trust him. And, and I think in that moment, it's kind of De Palma acknowledging the divide between his audience or his critics and himself. It, it, the, the movie kind of reads that way. If you, if you look at it, uh, mm. you can look at it that way. And so, yeah, he was, he was aware of that and, and body double, was the end of that bad boy period where he was embracing the infamous uh, reputation that had he had kind of bestowed upon himself. I've got a couple of theories. It's interesting you mentioned the misogyny because I look at something like Dress to Kill and I feel like that film is in Lars von Trier territory. Like th- that whole film seems to be a film about the, the, the crimes perpetuated upon women by men. Like, you look in that film, the smartest character in the film is Nancy Allen. The, um, every, every man in the film is either a killer, a sexual predator, a victim blamer, or just an idiot. And it's really interesting. Like, I don't think it's a misogynist film at all. I think it's, it, like with a lot of Von Trier's work, I think it's the opposite. I think, I think it's looking at the, the way the patriarchal system has been horrible towards women throughout the years. Mm-hmm. No, and it's Nancy Allen, her character, working with uh, a young version of Brian De Palma, because uh, that's those are that's that character, that Keith Gordon character, is Brian De Palma at that age. Yeah, mm. and it, I find that I found that the film did a Superman three on Norman Bates. It's, it's you've kind of on one hand you've got the you know the cross dressing killer who needs to kill in order to get any sort of sexual satisfaction. He's kind of the, all of the dark side is that character, and then you've got. The, the chivalrous, mother-obsessed, nice kid. And he's the, you know, he's the, he's the, the, the light side of it. Um, I found that was really, really interesting as well. He's kind of, yeah, he's, he, he's gotten that influential character in his own film experience and life from his favourite filmmaker and kind of, yeah, mm. exploring the two halves of that. Yeah, from, from there he goes to, to yeah, Wise Guys, the, the almost Midnight Run-esque Danny DeVito and Joe Piscopo comedy to his, uh, The Untouchables, which is just is my absolute favorite of his films. It's apart, stands apart from his other movies. It's a pure, you know, I've, I've, I've always said it's kind of like Star Wars with Tommy Guns. Um, <laughs> you know, that's the way I looked at it. I mean, it is a, an immensely entertaining film. One of, one of my uh, favorite movies to just watch. It's, mm. it's a crowd, it's a great crowd pleaser. It, it, it works. And, you know, and then you turn around and you do, you know, this film, you know, Casualties of War that is uh, such strong medicine. And it is, it's so amazingly well done. I do think it's, it's close to his, great, his greatest work. I, with the sole exception, I've always had one problem with the movie, which is that he drops in uh, this suspense, this classic De Palma suspense beat where uh, Michael J. Fox is in the latrine and, you know, he's going to, and there's a guy mm-hmm. who's going to blow him up and, and it's kind of like a, it's an old De Palma scene and I'm kind of like, I don't know if this should be in here. I, I think that this is a beat that maybe doesn't belong in this film because mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it does feel kind of genre. 
that's like the only thing I can take away from Casualties of War. Other than that, I think it is a uh, it is you know it's just a harrowing, um, heartbreaking, uh, infuriating movie. Uh, it, 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 I think it captures everything he felt about the, the war. And it's the old revolutionary of Greetings and Hi Mom looking back on it as, a, as an older man and, and treating it with the seriousness that it, you know, it deserves. So he goes from that to he's got sort of three more films left of this period. He does Bonfire of the Vanities, Raising Cain, which is sort of a throwback to his sort of dress-to-kill body double. Uh, style and then Carlito's Way, which is a, a throwback to Scarface, and and in many ways I think superior to Scarface just as a as, as a film. Well, it's it's uh, almost the, an elegiac companion piece. Like for all that Scarface is hopped up and excessive and coke fueled, mm. that Carlito's Way is kind of the sad. This is what happens later. You know, it's the it's the look at the price of all of that excess. Yeah. It's a, they work really well as 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 a one two punch I think. It's got a it's a it's a more likable film. I mean Carlito's a more likable guy. Uh, interesting that they call him Charlie all the way through the film. A friend of mine mm. pointed out he was like, yeah, he's like, can you think of another really great film where the protagonist is called Charlie all the time? And I was like, what Citizen Kane? He was like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and if you look right. at Carlito's way, you can kind of see a a, a narrative similarity uh he, he might have been using a model there and he sort of follows that with with this phase where he he's not just a guy who's working with the studios he really feels like a studio director where he's delivering product and that's not a, a comment on the quality of the films he makes because it sort of starts with mission impossible in 96 which i think it's its status as an iconic action film undercuts the fact that it's, to me, one of the most underappreciated espionage films ever made and does not get, I think, the credit in those circles that it, that it should. It's such a riveting flick. And again, I think, like The Untouchables, it, the Mission Impossible is a studio movie par excellence. I think it, it just really, really works. And But there's that definite De Palma signature on the style. Like, the, the, they really let him go in terms of, you know, incorporating the top carpy style set pieces mm. and the great, you know, the, the skewed... The Dutch tilts. Yeah, the skewed angles. I mean, that whole conversation between Cruz and Kittredge mm. filmed from underneath is just so tense. The helicopter chase is a bit silly at the end and feels a bit studio mandated. The rest of it is just fantastic. Mm-hmm. He's in complete command of that movie, and it's it's a huge movie. It's probably the biggest thing he'd ever worked on. Maybe, mm. eh, I don't know, Bonfire might have been up there. But it's a De Palma movie right from the get. I love how they do the opening credits, and you actually see like the members yes. of the uh, crew getting killed. But, I mean, that, yeah, but, you know, you were saying about the, the studio stuff, and, you know, the Mission Impossible really, it was such a big hit. And he'd had two hits, because Carlito's Way was successful, and that allowed him to do you know, Snake Eyes, which was, you know, kind of an original mm. with him and David Kep. The mm. first half hour of, of Snake Eyes is riveting, and you've got you've got Cage in full flight. You've got that amazing tracking shot. It's just super cool. And then it just gradually kind of dwindles down, and by the end it just gets more kind of ridiculous and crazy, and then it just sort of goes out with a whimper that it really shouldn't have. It feels like a bit of a compromised movie in some ways. I, I can watch it, I enjoy it, but I feel like it's a minor... De Palma movie, all told. Yeah. Speaking of minor De Palma movies, Mission to Mars. <laughs> now, I, I understand this has its ardent supporters. Um, <clears throat> are you, are you you're, you're one? I am. 
it's a film that I mean again, you know, because we were talking about how he's got a bit of the sap in him. You know, mm. the, the, there, there's a real kind of you know he he does have that that childish kind of wonder uh, that that just doesn't it do, it gets out occasionally in the technique and in, and when he's pulling off a great sequence. But here, you know, with the astronauts and everything, I think he this is something that you know he finds the kind of boyish wonder uh, and 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 he plays it. You know, he plays these guys as, as Boy Scouts in a way. And so the, the tone right away is very earnest. And I know that that throws people, but I, I don't know. I like it. I like the tone of the movie. I think it's playful. I think it's, it's kind of, it's very earnest, but a little different for him. But, but the more I watch it, the more I like it. The one thing I will say in its favor, it is admirably optimistic. Yeah. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely give it that. But, yeah, I just found it so hokey. And then by the end, it sort of felt like a bit of an amusement... It felt like an advertisement for a Disney amusement park ride. Like, it felt, it feels like they walk into Epcot in the last, <laughs> in the last act. And, yeah, and casting Jerry O'Connell as an astronaut. Talk about our bridges too far. Or anyone, really. He <laughs> um, goes from that to, to Femme Fatale in 02 and, and the Black Dahlia in 06. There is stuff to appreciate in both, but it sort of feels like... I know his 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 edges have been sanded off a little I, bit. I actually think Femme Fatale is a lot of fun. Like it's ridiculous. Mm. One thing throughout De Palma's career, one of his hallmarks is he has no interest in any sort of reality. Mm. Like things, I mean, emotionally reflect our world, but in terms of the way the world works and the way. Log, you know, logic or sequence. Or just... Well, that's the thing because he did it in Raising Cain and Body Double. There are sequences which don't actually make sense on any like thematic or narrative level that like you can't even explain away as a dream sequence. They just they literally don't fit in into the film. Actually, Femme Fatale is very. It's pretty strict with its uh, rules. Um, mm. Any time that the the clock is, you know, if you notice, it's like when she takes that bath. You know, from that point, you've got you've got a sleeping woman, and you've got uh, you've got this other version of reality going, and uh, and and it and it's constantly people in scenes pouring water because the water yeah, is overflowing yeah. in the uh, in the bathtub. So there's like mm. a lot of like water and the clock. fish tank is overflowing, and yeah, the clock is stuck. The clock is always stuck at the same time in every room where there's a clock. You'll notice it's uh, and he doesn't like you know, go in on close up on the clock. But if you look, you'll see, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. And I mean, you know, it's, and so he's, I think it's a, I honestly think Femme Fatale is a masterpiece. I think it's, wow. uh, I, I, I love that it's, it's about a, a genre archetype having to go against her nature, uh, as a Femme Fatale. It's, it's a truly formalist work and, you know, and it's all about theme. It's not, you know, narrative coherence, classical narrative coherence is not something that he's interested in here. He's kind of after something else. And it's, uh, it's this whole idea of this uh, leopard changing her spots type thing, but it's done with such great style. And it's really, he's, he's got such great control over the material. I think it's a very tight film. I definitely would ask you to watch it again. Cause it, okay. there are just so many payoffs down the stretch. And we, we recently did uh, screen it at the uh, new Beverly and, and, and a lot of people who, had never seen it or had seen it once and hadn't thought much of it. And it got like a standing ovation at the end. Uh, people just, it was one of those moments. So, Well, you've, I, you've convinced me. I'm going to revisit it. I've got to say, of his 2000s films, I think it's easily his best. S certainly, but look, I'll give you that over, certainly over Black Dahlia, uh, which is 
I don't know, there. It just it's, sort of sits there. It just feels like a listing of events, like with no real character anchor at all. Like it's just this happened and then this happened and this happened and none of it hangs together. Well, it's the problem, you know, of doing an Elroy adaptation. His his books have so much plot. There's so much going on in them. And it's not a good fit for De Palma, for what he does. And, yeah, and you know, it employs a lot of voiceover, which is not something that, De Palma likes to do a lot. I mean, he has done it in Carlito's Way, for example, but uh, but here it's just exposition, and it, he's not doing a lot of visual storytelling, so it doesn't feel like he's engaged. And there are a few sequences. I love the the dinner sequence that's filmed from uh, his POV, uh, you know, as he goes to eat with Hillary Swank's family. But mm. aside from that, it it is it's 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 a disappointment. And and he experiments in '07 in redacted with. Uh, found footage type film, which I, I, yeah, it just didn't feel like a good, a good fit to me. Like I love that he experiments and that he pushes himself. And I like that he's, it's his political conscience hitting up again. I like, it's one of the few films that's openly critical of the U S army in Iraq, which I think is pretty great. At that time it was, it was a kind of a howl of outrage. Uh, mm. You know, it's it, the performances and things I, I think, are, are not that great, and then they yeah. hurt the film. Uh, but, yeah. but you know, the way he wraps up that movie is pretty powerful. I, I liked yeah. it at the time, but I haven't revisited it. I'm much the same there. I think I, I, think I admire it more for its, for its intent and its form rather than how it actually hangs together. Which is something I feel about with, with even the films of his I don't like. There's a lot in there I admire. I, I love the intent. I, I guess that applies to uh, his most recent film, Passion, which has played at a, a bunch of film festivals. And it, it, it's messy, it's silly, but I, have, I think it's a, it's a lot of pulpy fun and it's kind of nice to see him, you know, return to that Hitchcock-inspired place that he came from. Yeah, I just feel like the first hour just doesn't... It just feels like all the energy's drained away. Like, it feels... The first hour feels like it's shot like 80s British TV. It's so staid and kind of... You say your line. Now I say my line. And now you say... And it just feels so clunky. And then once things start ratcheting up in, in sort of the next half hour is when it starts feeling like De Palma. But it's, it's extraordinary that he's still going because it's been over five decades worth of films and there is... No sign that he's slowing down whatsoever. He's got at least at least two films, I think, in the pipeline. Uh, the, the Joe Paterno biopic with Pacino, I think, is his next one. But, yeah, it's, it's extraordinary, the, the, the energy and the, uh, the body of work he's got. Yeah, and, you know, he's, he's a little bit older than I think some people realise, you know, that he, uh, he kind of came up at the same time as Spielberg and, and, and all, that, all those guys. Mm. And he is, you know, he's turned 70. He's like 71 now, I think. He's 73 in September. 73, okay. Wow. Yeah. Born on September 11th. Yes. Passion, I, I have not seen, yet seen Passion. I will be interested to see how he handles it. I mean, you, know, you, do be, you do begin to get worried with stylists like him that they, uh, as they get older, they stop being able to pull off some of the stuff they used to. So I'll be interested to see if he can, if he can stay at that level, if he still has the energy to to make movies, and it's very possible he will. I mean, uh, you know, Martin Scorsese surprises me, and I know he's a little bit younger, but, you know, he's still making really vigorous movies for uh, where he is in his life. And so I hope that De Palma can continue to do that. I think that, you know, he's a guy who lives, eats, sleeps movies, and uh, we we need him out there making films. 
Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us and for talking us through De Palma's filmography. Not thanks, thanks, Jeremy. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, this was a blast. I'm glad you enjoyed it, and we'll see the rest of you next month. Kittredge, you haven't seen me upset. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.